Good morning. This morning, as we start this time together, we will be focusing on the Lord's Word. I want to start by asking you to answer some questions. Now, I don't want you to answer them out loud, uh, but I do actually want you to make a mental answer. I want you to articulate an answer to these questions in your brain. I'm not simply asking them as a rhetorical device. I want you to engage in the question so that you can answer it for yourself. I think if you would just be willing to truthfully consider and answer these questions I'm going to ask you, I think it's possible that your life could very well be much better for it after we look at this morning's text and consider the implications it will present us with. So one little more, one little other caveat before I get to the question. Context might appears in such a way that it prompts you to think I'm asking you about how you feel. But feelings are important, undoubtedly. Feelings are important, but that's not what I'm asking you about these questions. Instead of asking you to answer these questions with how you feel, I want you to consider who you are. I want you to consider how who you are as a person identifies with what I'm going to ask you. In other words, if you were to answer these questions with evidence from how you think about and live life, how would they have to be answered? What evidence from your life would support your answers to these questions? I hope you are picking up what I'm laying down. Our first question. Are you happy? Do you genuinely and actively enjoy your life? Do you live with a consistent, satisfying, and motivating sense of purpose and fulfillment? Do you intentionally and regularly think about why you were here And experience the joy, peace, patience, and goodness that comes from fulfilling that purpose. Are you unhappy? Are you unfamiliar with true, deep-rooted, unwavering, life-guiding, ever-satisfying, and motivating joy and fulfillment? Let me ask that last question again. And remember, we're looking for evidence-based answers. Are you unfamiliar with true, deep-rooted, unwavering, life-altering, ever-satisfying, and motivating joy and fulfillment? Perhaps the most important question Have you bought into the lie that that last question doesn't matter? You see, we live in a world that says all kinds of things matter. And depending on your current context, certain things matter more than others. And of course, this is true. But what the world we live in doesn't promote, in fact, what everything in the world that we live in is trying to deceive you from is the truth that the purpose for which you were made matters more than anything else in all of existence. The purpose for which you have been made can never at any moment ever be subordinate to anything else because it is indeed the very purpose for which everything else has been made. 
your purpose, your reason for existing, the why behind why you are here is the reason that everything else exists. And the proportion in which you were deceived to believe this does not matter is the same proportion in which you will live your life in such a way that answers all the questions I have asked you differently than you were designed to do so. In other words, if you answered the questions I asked you differently than you know you should, it is very likely because you have been distracted and deceived into living a life you were not designed to live. Now, there are different degrees in which this will be true for every single person in this room. For some, it will be true in such a way that you are absolutely without hope. You have chosen and will continue to choose to live your life in such a way that never rightly fulfills the purpose for which you were made. And as with all things that do not fulfill their purpose, you will sadly, but rightly, be thrown away. For others, it will be true in such a way that you live within the context of a certain and secured hope. Though we still continue to make choices that do not rightly align with fulfilling our purpose, doing so is no longer who we are. Though we did not desire to fulfill the purpose for which we were made, we now follow one who has perfectly fulfilled the purpose for which we have been made. And because he has now covered our broken identity with his perfect identity, we are no longer destined for destruction. When our maker looks upon us, he no longer considers our deficiency to be a detriment because it has been filled in full measure by the abundant efficacy of the purpose-filling work of the one who has called us to be identified with him. For those of us in this category, we experience the joy and satisfaction of fulfilling our purpose in direct proportion to how much we have been deceived or distracted from it. In other words, the more you understand, focus on, and align with your purpose, the more joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment you will know. It's easy math, even for a humanities major. Contrary to the world's lie, the more you understand, embrace, and live out your purpose, the more you will enjoy the answers to the questions I just asked you. And I have great news for anybody who is interested in getting better answers to those questions. The one who made you, the one who gave you your purpose, he wrote a book about it. And oddly enough, that book starts by telling us why we're here. I think you know the book I'm talking about. Hopefully, you have it in your lap. We're going to be looking at the beginning of it this morning. In modern time, pour these a bit the text of asking, what did the author intend to communicate in this portion of scripture? What's its primary point? What was it that both the human and divine authors intended to communicate to both the original and subsequent readers of this passage? When we look at that text with that question in mind, I think it becomes rather obvious that Genesis 1, 26 through 28 is the primary point 
of the first part of the Bible. And furthermore, the primary foundation by which to understand all of human history and all of creation. Let's do a quick survey. Let's jump in at the beginning and work through the first 25 verses of the Bible. The book starts with a declaration, which you will all be familiar. It's a declaration of God's all-encompassing sovereign authority over all of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now remember, the original audience for this text was a people who just came out of a culture littered with multiple gods who had authority and influence over multiple things. The idea that one God, their God, created all things was no small claim. One God, the God who definitively delivered them, displaying his superiority over the so-called gods of their captors, was the one who created everything that is. And consequently, everything that is, is his. He made it all. He owns it all. He has authority over it all. We sang about this just a few minutes ago. This is again highlighted in the second verse when the reader reads, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now when we read this, we may simply think God had created all the elements of creation and he simply had not put them together yet. But that is not what was being communicated to the original reader. When they read that the land was without form and void, they would have understood this to mean that creation was scattered and chaotic. To them, the preformed substance of nature was a wildness of disordered existence without purpose. It was unpredictable, tumultuous. It was scary. And this is reiterated in the next line with the reference to the face of the deep, or sometimes translated as the dark abyss. This concept of deep unknown water was an untamed mystery, full of potential peril. It was terrifying reality to the ancient people. Now, if we read this thinking the author's intent was to simply relay some basic scientific data, brothers and sisters, we missed the point. This wasn't about a display at a museum. That's not a knock on a museum. But my point is, I think we're missing the actual point the author's trying to first and foremost relay. We miss that his intention is to tell the reader that though everything seemed chaotic, uncontrolled, dangerously unstructured, and filled with a perilous lack of purpose, all of that supposed chaos was actually being supervised by the Spirit of God. The spirit of their almighty God hovered over all this without an ounce of fear or trepidation because it was all his. He made it all and was in control of it all. The author is telling the reader all of nature in all of its chaos and uncontrollable and unpredictable power is and always has been under God's supervision. Even when it was more wild than what they see in their current context. By the way, it's still true. He's always been in charge of everything, even when it was worse than your current context now. He doesn't sleep or slip. He reigns over all. God made it all, and his spirit has been attending to it all, always. An interesting side note here, just to recognize something. 
um, there's an immediate juxtaposition between Israel's God and the God of the Egyptians. You recognize that? There's one God here. They came out of a bunch of gods. And immediately from the jump, there is one God and multiple persons. Right? You see, there's God and there's the Spirit of God. Now, look, they would have had no idea that their God actually existed in three persons as of yet. That's not there. But immediately from the jump, there is like this apology, this kind of protest against where they're coming out of. This God is different. There's nobody else. He does it all by himself. Anyway, after this verse, we start to see the formlessness of creation get formed. God begins putting creation into order. As most of you will know, he does this in six days. In the first three days, he splits creation into three realms of existence. And then in the next three days, he populates those realms with inhabitants. In day one, he creates light and separates the light from the darkness, establishing the order of time and experience. By his light, the things he has made will be seen, and as darkness and light pass back and forth, days will occur, making the succession of events, marking the succession of events that will take place throughout the history of his creation. In day two, God commands the separation of the chaotic waters, again showing his authority over them as he tells them what to do. He separates them, leaving one as it was and elevating the other above to be what he names the heavens or the sky. In day three, he again separates the lower waters, but this time bringing them together to make way for what he will name earth or land. And when he commands the land to come forth, again an expression of his power, when he, when he commands the land to come forth from the waters, he also commands it, commands it to sprout forth vegetation, plants and trees that will prepare the land for the inhabitants that are soon to follow. So in the first three days of creation, God shows his power, prerogative, and authority over all things by ordering the seemingly unordered existence of what he has made. The reader sees that God has an intent behind his creating. He is forming it into a structure, which one only does if they have a purpose. God has ordered his creation so that it will exist within a realm that can be seen and measured. He created light and time as a superstructure that will be the foundation for how his creation is experienced. He organized the heavens and waters in such a way that they will support and make room for the realm of the land, which he will also intentionally prepare with resources and food in such a way that it will support something else that seems to be coming further down the line in creation. Everything seems to be moving towards something for some purpose. It's all working towards this climax that is yet to come. After ordering these realms of existence in the first three days, God then begins populating them. On day four, he populates the realm of time and experience by speaking the sun, moon, and stars into being. And he says they will be used to give light on the earth and mark the days, years, and seasons that his creation will proceed through. On day five, God speaks forth animals into the realms of the waters below and the waters above, and the skies and seas begin filling with the creatures that will populate them. On day six, he begins populating the final realm of land by calling forth living creatures from the earth, 
And the earth obeys by producing all kinds of living creatures to walk upon and fill the land. And again, as he has already said, for every other day of creation, he declares that this is good. However, he was not done populating the realms he had created. There was still unfinished business. All of creation had been put into order. Everything was now structured according to design. The heavens and earth were no longer void and without form. However, while God was clearly the all-powerful, sovereign authority over everything that had been made, he, as a spiritual being, was not yet physically represented in the physical realms he had created. Now, we could, of course, decided that it would remain this way. But it's clear that from the way that he has ordered and developed creation that this was not his intention. The entire ordering of what had been made was always moving towards an end. When you look at the way the story is conveyed, it's obvious that it was continually moving towards a destination. Or perhaps better yet said, an arrival. You see it perhaps most clearly at the end of day three. When after creating the land, God also goes on to create resources in the land. Though there is not yet anyone there to use those resources, God foreshadows that there will be. And then, in the same way that day three has a two-part creation narrative, so does day six. And while the second part of day three foreshadows that God is ordering all of creation for something that is coming to use it, the second part of day six shows the reader who that someone is. Chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. At the pinnacle of creation, God creates an image, a physical representative to exercise his dominion, God's authority and ownership over everything God had created. Humanity was made to represent God as his steward of his creation. This is why humans exist. This is the reason. This is why you exist. This is your purpose. God made you. He made me. He made every human that has ever lived to represent him in his image according to his likeness as you steward whatever he gives you to steward. 
Theologians have spilt oceans of ink trying to understand and explain what it means for humans to be made in the image of God. Does it have something to do with our physical makeup? Is it something about the way our mind and our spirit work? Is it our ability to produce emotion and abstract thought or to create new things? The ideas and theories go on and on. And some of them are quite fascinating, quite honestly. But what fascinates me the most is trying to understand why it is that people are so caught up in trying to figure out what part of a human is the image of God when scripture has absolutely no concern with that topic. There is no place in scripture where any author ever endeavors to explain how the makeup of a human being is the image of God. Feel free to check me on it. It's not a long book. You could get through it in seven or eight days if you don't do anything else. I think the reason... For this, the reason that it doesn't come up again is because the authors of scripture understood what Moses was communicating when he told the story of man being created in God's image. They paid attention to the entire context of the creation story, and it's why I went over it rather quickly. They saw that the author's intent was to explain that man was created to be the image of God, to image God. Humans were created to be the physical representative of God in his physical creation. Some part of us was not simply designed to look like or mimic something about God. The totality of who we are, the whole reason we exist, is to display God. To reflect who he is and how he does things by the way we are and the way we do things. We are made to image him, to represent him, to display him. What is the chief end of man? No Presbyterians in the room? That's right. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. What does it mean to glorify God? It's to display who he is, to bear his image. Brothers and sisters, this is not complicated. I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying it's not complicated. It's actually abundantly clear and quite simple if you read the entirety of scripture, keeping this in mind. Remembering that every single person and every single group of people mentioned throughout all the pages of the Bible were made for the purpose of properly displaying God by stewarding what he gave them. You will clearly see that this is the backdrop and primary plot of every single story you read. This is indeed what everything is about. Humans have been given the privileged purpose of displaying and reflecting the greatest thing in all of existence. God himself, the almighty, inexpressibly, inexpressibly magnificent creator and sustainer of all things, who is beyond physical containment, has decided to make us as his physical representatives among all he has made. Though we are finite limited and without any power or authority of our own, we have been crafted to represent the infinite, 
unlimited, all-powerful, sovereign ruler of everything. What? There is no greater purpose to be had. And we have been made to do no other thing. This is it. But we, just like the people we see throughout Scripture, we foolishly flee from this purpose. Instead of worshiping God by stewarding the things he has created in such a way that rightly reflects his greatness, we choose to worship the things he has created and use them to try to reflect some sort of personal greatness that we don't actually possess. Though we were made to represent him, we use what he has made to try to represent ourselves. We all do it. We're broken. Though we are image bearers, we do not bear his image in a way that rightly represents who he is. We were made for a specific purpose, but we live in such a way that does not rightly fulfill what we were made to do. What do you do with things that you make or you own that don't do what they're supposed to do? God is represent who he is. You see, there can be no accepted deficiencies in an image bearer. Because that would imply that there are deficiencies in the one that they are reflecting. And there ain't nothing deficient about God. So we can either get rid of them or we can fix them. You see, as their creator, as your creator, he can do something that will cover a human's brokenness. And will result in them perfectly displaying exactly who he is, always and forever, without ever being able to misrepresent him again. Listen to these scriptures. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. For our sake, he has made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Another, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Another, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Yet again, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
It continues, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The broken image bearer can either be thrown away by the wrath of God or the broken image bearer can be brought in to Christ Jesus by the grace of God. And when the broken image bearers brought into Christ, the father no longer looks upon the cracks and blemishes of his broken image and sees deficiency to be discarded because he sees the perfect imprint of his image in the face of his son with whom you are now identified. You are a broken image, but in Christ Jesus, you can be perfect. Not by your own doing, but by the grace of God. Not because you were great, but because he is jealous to see his image displayed in his creation. So by the grace of God, Christ has made it possible that you may come into him. So that when the Lord looks upon you in your broken life, he does not say doom and wrath to follow. He sees his son. And he sees an inheritance prepared by the work of Christ that is placed upon you. Be reconciled in Christ and be fulfilled. Are you happy? If you're not in Christ, you're never going to be happy. Because you will always know deep inside that you are still broken. And outside of him, you will always be. Do you genuinely and actively enjoy your life? If you're not in Christ, you you can't. You can't. Anything you think to be joy outside of Christ... It's a deception that is actually leading to destruction. Just like a drug, it may give you a temporary buzz, but every hit is actually robbing you of your life. Do you live with a consistent, satisfying, and motivating sense of purpose and fulfillment? Do you live with a consistent, satisfying, and motivating sense of purpose and fulfillment? Brothers and sisters, listen to me. You can. Don't believe those lies. Don't believe the voice in your head that says Zach's over talking right now. Don't believe what the world throws at you and says, yeah, that's nice on Sundays and maybe every couple of weeks, days during the week, but I got other things to do. It's trying to kill you. You tell me if the things you're wasting your life on are actually helping you look more like Christ Jesus. And how's that working out for you? You're being lied to. 
You can know fulfillment. Do you know how I know? Because Christ made it possible. And he ain't no chump. What he does, he does right. And he'll finish the work that he started in you. It's already been purchased and fully paid for you. If you want to experience the true joy of fulfilling the purpose for which God made you, if you want to experience the satisfaction of rightly representing the greatest thing in all of existence, Christ says, come. He says, come and follow me. And in following him, you will dine upon the satisfaction of representing the one you were made to image. You do not have to be unfamiliar with true, deep-rooted, unwavering, life-guiding, ever-satisfying, and motivating joy and fulfillment. Be reconciled in Christ Jesus. Follow him. And like him, enjoy living all of your life to represent the one you were born to reflect. As the band is coming up, I want to prompt you to consider a few implications. Um, We'll be coming back to this topic next week and looking at Colossians 1, but I want to prompt you to start thinking about some implications for image bearing. Just some questions. If God made us to reflect who he is and how we tend to whatever he gives us to do, how does that impact the way we live our lives? Would someone be able to look at us doing our job or our schoolwork and see who God is reflected in what we're doing? Would someone be able to see the way we interact with our spouse, our children, our parents, siblings, friends, neighbors, coworkers, whoever? Would they be able to see the way we interact and see who God is in the way we treat them? In the way we value them? Would it appear that we value them the way God values them? As people made to display his greatness? If this is what we are made to do, represent and reflect who God is, shouldn't we be thinking about this like, I don't know, all of the time? You know, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, like I read that somewhere. It seems like it would be helpful for us to always have this on our mind if we actually want to know the true joy we were made to experience. Which also makes me think, about this one. Wouldn't it be cool? Wouldn't it be cool if we had like a group of people that we could surround ourselves with that were like obsessed with better knowing the Lord so they could show him in their life and represent them well? Wouldn't it be amazing if instead of spending copious amounts of time stirring one another up over inter- or entertaining one another over things that have no little or little to no lasting value, what if we regularly engaged one another with things of great and eternal importance? Or even engaged about simple and temporal things in such a way that reminded us of how our God's greatness is displayed in even the most simple things. I think we could probably do a better job of representing who our Lord is if we helped one another out not being so distracted by all the dumb stuff this world's throwing at us. If we want to live truly fulfilled lives and do what the Lord has made us to do, wouldn't it make sense to get rid of all the stuff that doesn't help us to better know and show who he is? 
And maybe spend more time focused on doing stuff that does help us better know and show them. I mean, I haven't had a math class in like decades. But I'm pretty sure that's an easy equation to figure out. If we were made in God's image to represent and reflect him in what he puts before us to do. And Christ has made it to where we can actually do that by following him. It seems like it would be in our best interest to focus our lives on that. No? What do you think? You've been made for the privileged purpose of representing and displaying the greatness of God. The work of Christ has made us a people set apart so that we can rightly proclaim his excellencies. You want to do that? You want to do that? Brothers and sisters, let's want to do that. Let's want to do that together. Christ has made it possible that you and I, us, as a church family, we can work together unto the end of making him known, of displaying his greatness, of representing him with all of our life. I guarantee you got nothing better to do. What if we came together, not overwhelmed, known? That's crazy talk. I got bills to pay, responsibilities to take care of, children to feed, cars to fix, lawns to mow, all kinds of junk. Lord knows that. Lord knows all that. He's the one putting in front of you to do it. He's just saying you should do it, looking like him. How about together we help one another to do what he made us to do? There will be no greater satisfaction. And no one, no circumstance, no trial, no government, no foolishness in the community will ever take it away from you. Together, let's look like our Lord and enjoy spending the rest of our lives doing it. Pray with me. Lord, we know we are inadequate for the task for which we have been made. It's not a deficiency you built into us. It's a rebellion that we've chosen to follow. But Lord, we are also sure because of your word that we can be secured in Christ. And by being in him, we can work in concert with your spirit to rightly reflect who you are. Again, Lord, not by our own effort, but by your grace. So, Lord, we ask for something that is impossible for us. We ask that you would work in us, each and every one individually, Lord, and as a group, that we would endeavor together to represent you well and rightly. We know it's impossible for us. We know it is nothing for you because it is what you have designed and ordained that we would do. Make it so in our midst for your glory. And we thank you for the joy that awaits us in the doing of it. Forgive us for our inadequacies as you have so long ago at the cross. Inspire us, Lord, by what happened at the cross to endure for what lies ahead that we may show you well. I pray this in the name of our beloved Savior Christ Jesus.